once again, good morning. We are back in the book of John as uh, Josh brought us there last week and was preaching uh, for us and uh, sharing God's word from the chapter uh, 19 of the book of John. And so we are back in it again today. And it's all come down to this. This is it. The time has come. The very reason why Christ has come into the world. And last week, we left off with the crowd of Jews yelling, crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate says, you really want me to crucify your king? And even the chief priests, they reject that, right? They say, we have no king but Caesar. Christ is not our king. Jesus is not our king. Quit calling him that. Even in our text today, Pilate being used of God, really, he writes the inscription over the head of Jesus, and it says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Usually what they did with criminals that were crucified, criminals that were executed upon that Roman tree, what they would do is they would write their name and the crime that they committed. They would actually wear it around their neck as they were paraded through the streets on their way to death. And then they would take that sign and they would nail it to the cross above them, their name and the crime they committed. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Today, I want you to personalize that. Josh focused in a lot last week on the kingship, the lordship of Christ. Is he your king? Not just in a a cosmic sense, not just in a, yes, he's king of all the world. He is king of the universe. He rules and reigns over everything. But does he rule and reign over you, over your heart, over your life, over your will and ambition? Personally, is he king? Does he have dominion? Does he rule and reign Do you live solely to please him, to do what he wills, to advance his glorious kingdom? Is he your king? I think this is a concept for most churchgoers, right? If we've been in church for any length of time, if we've grown up in church, if we've been around church for any length of time, this is a concept of Christ being king. This is a concept that we believe in. That we, amen, brother, that amen, pastor, yes, Jesus is king. But in reality, or at least not in totality, do we actually live it? In actuality, is he king? How is our life, how is your life, how is my life any different than our unbelieving neighbors? We do all the same activities. Our kids are in the same schools. We go to the same sports, we strive for the same successes, we live for the same retirements. How are our lives any different than our neighbors? How do we live in this world but for a kingdom? How do we live in this world but not wrapped up by this world, caught up in the same ambitions of this world? How do we live in this world but live for the kingdom? I say it often, you guys have heard me say it, I'm sure. I don't want us to fall for add-on Jesus, right? 
He's that sprinkle on Jesus where we've got our own ambition, we've got our own life, our own comfortable suburban living, and then we just sprinkle on some Jesus on top. Kind of frost it over with a little bit of Jesus, a little Parmesan cheese on the salad that is your life. We have to enthrone him. We have to personalize this. Don't let the living of your life echo that of the chief priests as they cry out, we have no king but me. Let his love for you undo you. Let his sacrifice for you undo you. We're going to focus in on that sacrifice today. Let it undo you. Let it reorient your life no longer to the world, no longer to the successes of the world, but now to the kingdom of God and the advancement of the glory of Christ. This is it. The time has come. The most important event in history is now upon us. Jesus is going to die. He's going to climb the hill of Calvary and be crucified, be put to death for me and for you. Personalize that today. Not just this broad, sweeping brush of, yes, Jesus loves the world. God, Jesus, God sent his son into the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That truth is so true, but you need to personalize it. We need to personalize the cross of Christ. It's the most important event in human. It is the focal point, not just of the church, but of all of history. Everything before the cross, I heard a pastor say that this week in my studies, everything before the cross was looking to the cross. Everything from the cross is, is focused back in on the cross. Everything hinges on the scriptures we read today. That Jesus came and Jesus died for sinners. That in him, through him, believing on him, we would have eternal life. Everything points to the cross. And so today, we see the work of Christ. I want to focus in on the work of Christ and the response of us. So if you're note-taker type people, okay, we're going to focus in on this work, what he's doing here. We know that Jesus was beaten, that he was scorched, that he was whipped, probably with the Rogan flag. I think Josh talked about it last week, right? Sometimes a cat of nine tails, and there's some debate on whether or not it was an actual cat of nine tails or if it was this other object of, of beating, <laughs> where it was bone, it was metal on these leather straps, and it was put across the back of the criminal. Heavy leather, bone, metal, tearing apart his flesh, then forced to carry his own cross, as our text says. This heavy wood beam is probably not the full T, right? It's probably not the full T that we see here today, but probably just that horizontal cross member. Still heavy, still wooden, and carry that across your badly tattered back. They would parade him through the streets, not on a direct route, but they would take the scenic route. You know, coming to church here in these beautiful fall days, sometimes I don't go home the most direct route because I like to take the scenic route, especially on Sundays, especially on beautiful days like today. 
But the Romans, they would parade the criminal through the streets. They wouldn't go straight to the crucifixion site, straight to the execution site. But for humiliation's sake, for the sake of all the people to see this criminal, to humiliate this guy, and also to show everybody else that when you step out of line with Rome, this is what you get. They take him through the streets to display this criminal bearing his cross to see the pain that Rome is able to inflict, to humiliate. And they bring him to a place called Golgotha. Our scripture today says in Aramaic, it's Golgotha, it's the place of the skull. Lots of scholars think that it's because of the appearance of this hill. You could Google it. There's some... Uh, debate whether this is that's the actual site, but if you Google it, there is uh, in the rock, it almost looks like a couple of hollowed out eyes in the stone. In Latin, it's called Calvary, right? That's far more pleasant than Golgotha, or Golgotha, or however you want to say it, right? Depending on who you are. Calvary, it's way more pleasant. We, we should name a church after that, Right? but it still means skull. You named a church Skull Baptist. You named a church Skull Chapel. You know, you named a church, like, it ha even in modern dictionary definitions, it has overtones of the immense and extreme suffering. Our church, Mercy Hill Church, is actually our take on Calvary. Mercy Hill Church, right? That is the place where we see God's mercy poured out for sinful man. Where he is the propitiation of our sins. We talked about that just a few weeks ago. The wrath that is due sinners because of our nature and our deeds was put on Christ. He took the full wrath of God that was due us and we receive mercy. What's interesting about John's account, and we get no graphic details of this horrific beating. We get no details of the nails being driven. But John's audience clearly would have been familiar with this method of Roman execution. John's audience would have known. In our, in our text today, it's just verse 18. It says, there they crucified him with two others, one on either side of Jesus between them. John's audience would have known the horrific beating. They would have known the nails driven. They would have known his, his gasping for air. From the gospel accounts, we see how he was mocked, how he was given a, a purple robe or a scarlet robe, that there were crown of thorns as they mocked him as, as king. Those crown of thorns was wedged into his brow. He was spit on. He was beaten. He was reviled. D.A. Carson's commentary on John says this, Here in this public space where all could see him, the cr soldiers crucified him. In the ancient world, this most terrible of punishments is always associated with shame and horror. It was so brutal that no Roman citizen could be crucified without the sanction of the emperor himself. They were stripped naked and beaten to pulpy weakness. 
The victim could hang in the hot sun for hours or even days to breathe. It was necessary for them to push with the legs and to pull with the arms to keep the chest cavity open and functioning. Terrible mus muscle spasms racked the body. But since collapse meant asphyxiation, the strain went on and on. This is also why the sedecula, which I think is probably Latin for seat, prolonged life in agony, right? There was actually a little bit of a, a, little bit of a, a, a platform for either their feet or their bottom that they would end up pushing up on. It was put there not as a uh, relief, but it was put there to prolong the agony. It prolonged life in agony. It says it partially supported the body's weight and therefore encouraged the victim to fight on. In our text today, it only says, verse 18, there they crucified him with the two others, one on either side of Jesus, uh, one on either side and Jesus between them. So we see that he was crucified. He's grouped together with other criminals, thieves, murderers, and that's all part of the humiliation all part of him suffering publicly, slowly, with great pain, surrounded by criminals. And again, this morning, personalize that. He did that for me. He did that for you. I want us to personalize the cross of Jesus, that he lived and he died in obedience to the Father for you, for me, he was innocent. He was pure. He was blameless. We are not. We are the criminals. We are the ones who have transgressed the law of God, and the humiliation is due us. The stripes were for us, and the cross was for us. He was an innocent man. He was innocent of sin, and we are guilty of it. He died to atone for it. He died to cover it. He died to wash us whiter than snow and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He did that through the cross for me and you. There should be more amens, by the way. He died. He absolves the wrath of God that was rightly ours. He did that for you and for me so that we might live in him with him and unto him. Jesus, <laughs> it's too late now. <laughs> Jesus centered between these two guilty criminals. Right in Isaiah 53, I believe it's verse 12, he says, he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors, right? He's grouped in with these criminals. We don't get a whole lot of info about these criminals from the book of John. Actually, we don't get a whole lot of them in, in any of the gospel accounts, but Luke's account gives us a few more details. Verse 32, it says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. People stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. 
The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Here we get to the criminals. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What simplicity. What sim- like, do you see the response of the criminals? You've got one of them who is grouped in with all the others, mocking and reviling Christ. He's right there, right? Mock- and you've got, the, you got this other criminal. Actually, in Catholic traditions, they actually have given them some names. This is not uh, scripture. This is not biblical text. This is actually probably apocrypha. Uh, this, I think, comes from the Gospel of Nicodemus, where they named the mocker Gestus. And the other one, the penitent thief, is known as Dismas. One joins in with those who mocked and reviled. The other one beholds Christ. In his 11th hour, beholds Christ. We've been talking about that word a lot over the book of John, right? That we would see him, that we would behold him. The whole book of John was written so that we would see truly who Christ is. That eternal word who come down in the flesh so that we might be called children of God. That those who would believe in him would have life in his name. And we have a thief, a murderer in his 11th hour. Behold Christ before it's too late. He knows who he is. He knows what he's done. He knows what he deserves. We're sitting on this cross justly, rightly, getting the, 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 the punishment we deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. He is innocent. Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, that simple confession, Jesus honors. He sees the brokenness. He sees his confession of sin. He sees how he knows who he is and what he deserves. And he knows the one who gives life is sitting next to him. Jesus doesn't withhold. He doesn't say, yeah, but look at your whole life, man. Look at what you did your whole life. You think in your 11th hour you can come to me? He says, truly, I say today... You will be with me in paradise. In a few short moments when we pass on from this life, you will be with me in paradise. What a beautiful response. So what about us? So what do we do with the cross of Jesus? How do we respond? We have the work of Christ, right? We have the work of Christ, his love, his blood poured out, removing our sins, satisfying the wrath of God, and making us his own. Have you received Christ? 
Have you received the person and work of Christ by faith in him? We've talked about faith a little bit through the book of John as well, right? Faith is that believing. It's trusting. It's casting your life upon him. It's not just a mental ascent. It's not just going, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He's a good guy. But I believe that he is God. And I believe that I am a sinner and I believe that I need him. I confess my sin and I confess that he is king. Again, as we started this morning, reminding ourselves of the kingship of Christ and actually enthroning him again in light of the cross, how is our life, how is your life any different than our unbelieving neighbors? In light of the cross of Jesus, how do we respond to his cross? Do we come humbly and boldly to it, casting our life upon Christ in faith, saying, Jesus, I am yours. Jesus, I need you. Save me. Remember me. Are we too proud? Are we too self-sufficient? Are we too distracted by the world? In Matthew 16, right after Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to suffer and die at the hands of the Jews. You guys remember that? He tells his disciples he's going to suffer and die at the hands of the Jews. And there's Peter, good old Peter. Good old well-intended, speak-without-thinking Peter. He gets his strongest rebuke from Jesus. Jesus is like, I'm going to go and suffer at the hands of the Jews. And Peter's like, far be it from you, Lord. It'll never happen. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you have your mind set on the things of man and not of God. And then he continues on and he says this in verse 24. Jesus told his disciples, we know the scripture. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This, of course, is before the cross of Christ. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him take, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This is before the cross of Christ. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, if anyone's going to come after me, if anyone's going to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. The only concept of the cross that they would have is torture and execution at the hands of the Romans. Could you imagine how absurd that would sound? Like for us... Like, the, the cross is beautiful. For us, on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, on this side of his ascension, with the full scriptures in hand, the cross of Jesus is beautiful. Calvary is beautiful. The place of the skull is beautiful. We name our churches after it. Because of its beauty and what it means to us, the place of the cross rightly as the focal point in our churches. We make jewelry out of gold 
in the shape of a cross and we place it around our necks. If you think about it, it's weird without the context of Jesus. It'd be like wearing an electric chair around your neck without the beautiful cross of Christ and all that that affords us. He looks at his disciples. He says, if anyone would follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Jesus took up his cross and he died for us so that we may take up our cross and live for him. To deny ourselves, to deny our flesh, to forsake the world and live this life to the glory of Christ alone, to die to ourselves and live for him. You guys know Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Thank you, Jesus. And gave himself for me. Again, personalize the cross of Jesus today. Has the cross of Christ undone you and your life? Has it, undo, has it undone you and your life? Have you, uh, has it caused you to forsake the world and its pleasures and its ambitions and its definitions of success to die and now live in Christ Jesus, not for the world, but for his kingdom? You ever get down the road of something and you go, ah, it's too hard to turn back now. You ever gone down the road a little far and you go, ah, I've built all this up and you mean I got to tear it all down again? Like that's my fear. That's my fear in my life that I would build something and go, oh my goodness, I was building something for me and not for Christ. And to go, okay, now I'm confronted with this text and I go, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, die to yourself, follow me. Lose your life. You lose your ambition. Lose your successes. Lose it all for the sake of the kingdom. I don't know. I'm just too far down the road. I'm just too, I've, I've gone too far down the road. I've built too much. I'm just too far down the road. And I don't have the boldness or the humility to tear it all down. It's the thing about Christ. It's the thing about coming into Christ. When he purchases you, purchases you with his blood, he purchases all of us. All of our will, all of our ambition. Again, it's not that sprinkle on Jesus. It's tear it all down. Start over. Christ is my foundation. Christ my solid rock. I start building this new life on him. Every step, every move, every like anything, it is all to the glory of God of Christ in the advancement of his kingdom. We have to personalize the cross of Christ and the response that we have to it. We too are to follow Christ and it starts by following him in his death I ran into a, an article by Pastor Scott Sauls actually this morning. 
just flipping through social media and saw that he posted an article last week talking about true Christians. Talking about true Christians marked by self-denial and the service of others. Meeting the needs of others. And he highlighted Matthew chapter 25, uh, verses 41 through 45. As, and I think the article was something about the scariest words that Christ ever spoke or something like that. What's scary about it is he says it to church folks. Verse 41 says, And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And we did not minister to you. And he said, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And of course, this echoes Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, where he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And of course, I know we're familiar with the book of James, right? Jesus' half-brother and leader of the church in Jerusalem, he linked faith with self-denial and service, that faith without works. Those beautiful works laid out, commissioned by Christ, commissioned by God, and fueled by his spirit. That faith without the evidence of works is actually no faith at all. It's dead faith. In the article by Pastor Scott Sauls, he says this, Both Jesus and James are putting a spotlight on our inclination to replace Jesus' calling to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow him. We replace this call with a self-serving path in which we deny our neighbors, we take up our comforts, and we follow our dreams. When we do this, we exchange true faith for a counterfeit. We exchange irresistible faith with the way of thinking, believing, and living that God himself will resist. The cross of Jesus accomplishes, uh, accomplishes our salvation. The fact that we are in Christ Jesus is because of Christ Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We've been claimed by him. We've been saved from hell. And now this life is now sown into the field of the gospel for the glory of Christ. In light of the cross of Jesus, I take up my own cross and I deny myself and I now live for him. And it's a constant battle with my flesh. Anybody, right? Constant battle every day. Paul says, I die every day. I die daily. Wake up, crucify the flesh, live in Christ Jesus. Crucify the flesh, live in Christ Jesus. As we wrap up this morning and the band comes, have you followed Christ to the cross and taken up your own? Right? It's, it's finished in him. He declares, it is finished. Nothing else needs to be done, but now we live these life beautifully as worship unto him, not earning our salvation, but reflecting the glory of Christ. Have we died to ourselves? Have we died to this life? Have we died to the world and now live empowered by the Spirit 
for the kingdom of God. In a few minutes, we're going to come to the table of the Lord and remember his death. We're going to remember the crucifixion. We're going to remember Christ's work. We're going to remember his sacrifice. We're going to remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed and all that that affords us as his church. And as we do that this morning, I want us to reflect on his work and I want us to reflect on our lives. Have we taken up our cross and followed him? Have we denied ourselves? Have we for, forsook this world? Have we turned our back on this world and now live for the kingdom of Christ? Not just in theory, not just in hearts, but with a faith that is vibrant and active, with a faith that is evidenced by a living that proves the gospel true. I want us just to sit in silence for just a few minutes. And where you're at in your seat, I want us, I just want us to reflect on the scriptures. I want us to reflect on our lives. And if there's a place for, for a confession and repentance, do it now. Do it now. Ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you further. Ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you and to empower you to live this life for the glory of Christ. You can't do it in your flesh. This is not just me trying to motivate you to be a better person when you leave this place. We need the Spirit of God to change us, to empower us, to actually live this way. Like I said, the battle with the flesh is always there. We need the Spirit of God to overcome. Let's just take a moment. Let's reflect. Let's pray. Let's confess. Let's repent. And then we'll come to the table of the Lord together.